0: It just got so painful to be there. That was just so uncomfortable. And I know that I needed to change something about my life. And all the people around me were kind of like, oh, welcome to adulthood. Life is hard. You know, single parenthood. Everybody does it. It's fine. You'll be fine. You just have to be miserable for the next, you know, 15 years. And I was just like, I, yeah, I'm not going to do that.
1: I'm not here for that. Hey everyone, this is Flourish in the Foreign, a podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American business strategist and podcaster based in Barcelona. As a business strategist, I help Black women and women of color leverage their talents and their expertise into viable and sustainable online businesses, businesses that make them professionally fulfilled and financially abundant while pursuing thriving lives abroad. If you're interested in building a business abroad or taking your business abroad, please grab my free Build a Business Abroad guide, which you can find on the Flourish in the Foreign website at www.flourishintheforeign.com or in the show notes of this episode. Have you been thinking about starting your own podcast or perhaps you already have a podcast, but you want to grow it or maybe you're a little bit unsure on how to market the podcast? I want to highly recommend you joining the Women of Color WOC Podcasters Insiders membership. It is a membership that I am a paying member of and it has been so instrumental in the growth of this podcast. It can really help you get clear about your podcast idea, help you launch successfully, and help you grow your listenership. If you're interested in joining the WOC Insiders membership, please be sure to use my affiliate code, which you can find in the show notes of this episode or on the website, it is at no extra cost to you, but it does support this here podcast. I also have more podcasting resources available on the Flourish in the Foreign website, which you can find at www.flourishintheforeign.com slash resources, and just scroll down to podcasts. And I've put some products and services that I personally use to produce this here podcast. Flourish in the Foreign is a labor of love, but labor, nonetheless. And that's why I ask all of you lovely listeners to please support this podcast. You can support this podcast in a number of ways. You can become a Patreon supporter of this podcast at www.patreon.com slash flourish foreign. You can cash out the podcast at dollar sign flourish foreign. You can buy me a coffee via the buy me a coffee platform at www.buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. And if you are so inclined, you can purchase a piece of production equipment that is sorely needed to really keep this podcast going. You can find our Amazon wish list on the Flourish in the Foreign website at slash support. Before I get into today's episode, Janine wrote me an email saying how much she enjoyed the podcast, but also how she'd to hear more stories from single mothers who are abroad and who are thriving. And she actually gave me a whole list of questions that she'd love to hear answered. And I just want to thank you, Janine, so much for listening to the podcast, but also for writing me and letting me know what you want to hear on the podcast. Because you did that, I've actually bumped this episode up just for you, Janine, and for everyone else, for your listening pleasure. And I'll be taking your thoughts and your suggestions in mind as I develop the next season of Flourish in the Foreign. So, if you have suggestions, please feel free to share it with me. The easiest way to share it with me is by joining the Flourish Them Foreign email list where I'll be sending out emails to you and you can just reply back to me as well. So let this be a lesson to you all. Closed mouths don't get fed. And thank you again, Janine. So today's episode, we have Angie and I am so impressed and so inspired by Angie. She is a single mother who took her kids abroad and her story as to why she decided to take them abroad and how she has cultivated such a successful career and how she has been true to herself throughout. I just really enjoyed speaking with her and I think you'll really enjoy this episode. So, I'll let her tell you all about it.
0: So I'm Angie, um, also known as Angie the Diva in the city. I am 36 years old and I live in Saigon, Vietnam. I say that my hometown is Maui, Hawaii. It's where I spent most of my life before I came abroad. And I left Hawaii in August of 2016. My mom always wanted to travel. Well, she she talked about traveling a lot, specifically to France when we were kids. And then as we got older and she got a bit more fluent, then we started to take trips to the Caribbean and stuff. But when I was in university, I did a study abroad in Spain, and that's really where I got the bug. I was there for the summer. I went to Georgia State University. So... I actually could not decide on a major for a long time. I went initially to go pre-med and I took one chemistry class and I was like, absolutely not. So then I switched to pre-law and I was like, yeah, not a thing after political science class. So then I kind of was like, well, I'll do an English and Spanish dual major because I'd studied Spanish in high school for the whole entire time. So that was kind of what I settled on at the time. And then I went to Spain and I just, I absolutely loved it. From the outside looking in, most people would probably think it was not a great trip. Actually, I got robbed. I had to take a wicked bus ride to the embassy to get another passport reissued. The house that we were staying in, the woman was absolutely horrible to us. And we found out later that she was running a boarding house when we were supposed to be the only people in. So it was it was a kind of crazy trip, but it was also the best experience of my life. Just to see the world from a different perspective than I had growing up, it definitely made me want to travel more. And I actually didn't travel again probably for close to 10 years after that, so... It was just kind of always something that was in the back of my mind, you know, when I have enough money or when I have enough time or, you know, when I can make it happen. I I actually took 10 years to get my degree. I just couldn't settle on anything. I initially wanted to go to school to be an actress and my mother was like, absolutely not. You know, it's too risky. How's that going to work out? And so I sort of bounced around majors for the first three years of university. And then I took time off and I had some kids and I got married and then I went back to university and I ended up graduating from UH Manoa with a degree in a bachelor's in elementary education. I had been working in the school system as an after-school program coordinator for six or seven years or so. So it was just the easiest thing that I could do. Also with having my kids, and at that time they were two and four, maybe three and five. So they were quite young and teaching seemed an attractive career in order to be off at the same time that they would be and things like that. So I started teaching. I did not love it. The The students were fine, but I didn't love the bureaucracy of teaching in the public school system. It just, it just wasn't for me. It, it, I didn't like the way that the testing systems were and how they sort of categorized and labeled kids and this sort of this one size fits all model for education in the U.S. And I saw so many kids who didn't fit inside of that box, including my own daughter. And it just became harder and harder and harder to perpetuate that system knowing that I didn't believe in it. So I was doing that for two years and then Towards the end of my second year, I got divorced and I was suddenly a single parent and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. My whole idea, my whole world just kind of got flipped upside down. Um, It just wasn't the way that I planned for things to go. And it was the first time that I really realized that sometimes we can plan as carefully as we want to and then life happens and you just got to go with it. So I got divorced and at the same time my contract with the school ended and so I started teaching at my son's preschool and then I was substitute teaching for a while and it just got so painful to be there that was just so uncomfortable and I know that I needed to change something about my life and all the people around me were kind of like, oh, welcome to adulthood. Life is hard, you know, single parenthood. Everybody does it. It's fine. You'll be fine. You just have to be miserable for the next, you know, 15 years. And I was just like, I, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not here for that. So I started researching, you know, like single moms, you know, what what else can I do? What sort of other career paths can I go on? and i came across this woman Tane Bernard she has a different name now she's she's married but at the time Tane Bernard and she was teaching in the UAE single parent with three kids and she was doing really well she was making a good living for herself they were able to travel around and have all these you know amazing experiences and I had a degree in education, so I was at something I can do. So I applied for a job in the UAE, and I didn't get the job. But at that time, I was already sold on, you know, I can live outside of the U.S., and I can thrive, and I can give my kids these experiences. And that dream, that seed was, like, already planted. So I saved up a little bit of money. I did some research on, you know, the, the countries with a cost of living that I felt that I could handle. And um, I narrowed down my choices between South America and Southeast Asia. And the tickets to Southeast Asia were 50 bucks cheaper. So I, I, I left. I packed up my kids, a couple of thousand dollars, a couple of credit cards, and we left. And we traveled around Southeast Asia for about eight months before we landed in Vietnam. And it was... The best decision I've ever made in my entire life. Absolutely, hands down, the best decision I've ever made.
1: I wanted to know what Angie's family thought about her decision to take her kids abroad.
0: It didn't go really well. People thought I was absolutely nuts. My ex was out of the picture at the time, so he didn't really have anything to say about it, which was great. Actually, it turned out to be really good because I didn't have to ask anyone's permission to... To go and have these experiences with my kids. My mom seemed very supportive of it in the beginning. And then the night before we were to be leaving, she was like, this is a horrible decision. I can't believe that you're doing this. This is crazy. You're all going to die. And I was just like, what the fuck, mom? Okay. It was literally the night before we were supposed to leave. So I was just like, well, thank you for pretending to be supportive all this time, but we're still going. And then most of my friends, they just kind of didn't understand, but I did something. I didn't tell anyone that I was leaving until about two weeks before we left, because I I understood that what I was trying to do would be viewed as crazy in most people's worlds. And I didn't want to allow anyone's quote unquote caution to leak into my brain or my psyche or my spirit as fear. I knew what I was doing was not conventional and I just didn't want anybody trying to talk me out of it. I I was not sure of what would happen, but I just felt that it was what I needed to do.
1: I was also very curious to know how her kids felt about moving abroad. My
0: kids actually when I told them they they were young so they didn't really fully understand but they were they were for it they were like okay we're you know we're going we're gonna have these wonderful adventures you know I was showing them pictures of some of the places that we were gonna go and I let them pick you know. a couple of things that they would want to do. They were really excited. They were really excited a lot because they weren't going to have to go to school anymore. So that <laughs> that was a, a big enticement for them. And then my mom and my daughter are, are quite close. So my daughter was a bit, I mean, as as concerned as she could be in her six-year-old brain that she wasn't going to get to see grandma every day anymore. But other than that, it was pretty, It was a pretty smooth transition. And oh, I got to take that back because my daughter is also very particular about her stuff. So when we were leaving and we had to get rid of basically everything, she was not too happy about that. Because when we left, we left only with a carry-on suitcase each. So we did not take Anything with us, really? The plan was for us to travel pretty consistently for a while, and I just didn't want to have to, you know, tote all of their things and all of my things and pay for all these baggage fees and all of that. So getting her down to a carry-on was a bit of a chore, but um, but we did it, and we got on the plane. And everything was fine. When we left, I did feel this sort of camaraderie with my kids that I'd never felt before. It very much did feel like, you know, we were embarking on this journey together. And no matter what happened along the way, this was going to bring us so much closer. And we got off and in Bali and it was just kind of like amazing. (laughs) I mean, it was just like kind of really good from the start. And we went right off into you know, new experiences, just walking around the neighborhoods there where we stayed. It was just constant newness, constantly something we'd never seen or smelled or tasted or heard before, and exploring that together in a way that adults don't often get to do with children. For for the most part, it's it's the children experiencing everything new and learning how to do all of these things and so in in this way it was it was like we all were children together. And the first month we woke up when we felt like waking up. We ate where we wanted to. We just kind of let the day form itself. We didn't make a lot of plans. We didn't talk about school at all. And there was this sort of decompression period where it was learning how to be okay without all of the sort of American hustle, hustle, hustle all the time that we accepted as normal life. And now suddenly we had this completely different experience and it was okay to not be needing to do something at every point every minute of every day.
1: So Angie and her children have decided to travel abroad to go from place to place exploring and just to take a break from the American hustle and bustle. And so I asked Angie, what was that first year like?
0: So we landed in Bali. We stayed there a month and then we did our first work away in East Java. Which was a very interesting experience. We taught English in this small, remote village, which was it, it, that was that part of it was actually really fine. And and though we were living in a, a village that poverty at that level, we had never even imagined an experience like that. But it it was it was lovely and the, the people were so nice and wonderful. But we got food poisoning, like really, really, really wicked food poisoning for about five or seven days. And so that that experience really put a damper on that chapter. And then we went back to Bali for a couple of weeks. And then we went to Malaysia, which we absolutely loved and we kept going back to Malaysia actually. Uh, We went to KL. We went to Langkawi, Johor Bahru. We popped over to Singapore for a a day or two. Then we went to Thailand and we went to Cambodia and did another work away in another village teaching English, which is also a very interesting experience in a completely different way. The, The guy who was running the school there... I found out about halfway through our trip that he was sort of not using the donations and the materials as they should be or as he was telling people they were. So he was hoarding a lot of the food and the supplies himself and not really spreading them around the village like he was supposed to be. And he had some interesting thoughts on me traveling alone with my kids. There was a lot of, throughout our, throughout our travels actually, men would often ask me, where's my husband? Where's the man who's supposed to take care of me? Just completely astounded that I could be out in the world with my kids and be okay. So that was a very interesting thing to constantly have to be dealing with. And strangers would walk up to my kids and ask, Oh, where's your dad? You know, where's the man? So it was a very that was a very interesting experience. Yeah. That was weird. And and for my kids as well, because after a while, I, I think they they do understand the patriarchy on a different level on, on a level that kids their age probably don't get to experience often, but having to to constantly justify their existence without their dad, which brought up some it brought up some sad feelings for them from time to time because again, he was completely out of the picture at that time. But also it was like, you know we don't we don't need his permission or anyone's permission to do whatever we want. So that was interesting. We went to Cambodia, then we went back to Thailand. I wrote a book in Chiang Mai and then we went back to Bangkok and we kind of started to run out of money then because up until this point, I had pretty much been living on the money that I saved. And so this girl that we met in Cambodia, she went to Vietnam and she was like, oh, you can come here. It's really easy to live here. It's easy to get a job and the cost of living is super low. You guys, you know, will be able to thrive here. And so we did just on, on you know, the word of this woman that I met for like two weeks. And we landed in Vung Tau, which is a little coastal beach town in Vietnam. And I hated it. It was absolutely awful. It was very, very slow. It was super dirty. You couldn't even use the beaches really and it just, it felt very much like Maui, but filthy. And I was just, it had that small, tiny town feel, but I also can't use the beaches. This is this is stupid. So a transfer came through the English Language Center that I was teaching at to come to Saigon. And everyone was like, oh, you're going to hate it. It's so busy. It's so crazy. It's so chaotic. And I got to Saigon and I immediately was absolutely all of the yeses. I'm going to stay here. This is wonderful. This will work for us. So we did. And we moved to Saigon. And I've been here ever since. I've been here for almost three years. My kids were here for two of them. And now they've gone back to the U.S., with their dad.
1: As Angie mentioned, she participated in a workaway program. So, I asked her to describe what is the workaway program and what was her and her children's experience in this program.
0: So, workaway is it's a program you can sign up for online and I think you have to pay a small fee or something, but they list volunteer jobs across the world, and they really do range from teaching to more skilled things, carpentry or aquaculture, permaculture, anything really. There's all sorts of jobs there and all over the world. And basically you trade work for some level of room and board. Sometimes it's just for a room. Sometimes it's for the room plus food. Sometimes it's for, you know, all expenses paid sort of thing. They're usually in smaller villages or smaller towns, kind of remote places where they might not be able to get skilled workers there. You get to talk to the people before you go, you know, it, it all of the the sites on there are supposed to be vetted and, you know, they have to do some some sort of registration. And you see like reviews from other people and you can even contact the other people who stayed there before and, and talk to them, and ask them questions about it. So it is, you know, Sort of safe-ish. It's it's pretty. I, I didn't feel at any time that it wasn't safe, and I looked for places that would allow my kids to be there, that had other kids around, that would allow us to have the space that we needed and the privacy and things like that. But a lot of the places they are in in poor areas and and things like that. So you you do have to accept that. But it was it was a grand experience, even with the minor issues that. I had, it was still something that I would do again.
1: So when Angie decided to travel around the world with her kids, she decided to really buck the quote unquote traditional system or method of education for her children. And as an educator, she decided to embark in something that's called world schooling or unschooling. So I asked her to explain more about what that philosophy and methodology is and how she put it into practice with her own children.
0: So world schooling or unschooling, depending on how mobile you are, is basically not school. So my kids learned how to learn through their entire day to day. Traditional school teaches kids that they only learn while they're in this building, and they only learn from teachers. And it makes children expect to be spoon-fed material. It makes them learn something just for a test oftentimes, and it's not usually taught in practicality. So they, they're unable a lot of times to transfer that information to real-world application. On the contrary, world schooling or unschooling teaches kids that everything is a learning experience and a learning opportunity. Maybe the easiest way that I can describe it is, my kids learned how adults learn. When you want to know something or you want to find something out, you go and research it, you go and talk to an expert, you, you know, find someone who's doing that already and you learn from them. You take a class, you take a course, you know, you, you research that information and you find it out. And so that's what my kids did. If there was something that they were interested in, then we researched it and, and we figured out that information. For example, my son is really into animals. So every time we would go somewhere new, we would always have a sort of animal adventure. We did rescue sanctuary places or something like that. And I would pay a little bit of extra money to have the expert guide us through the thing where the kids could ask questions. There was always an objective for the day. Like they would have to learn three new facts or they would have to show their learning in some way. And they had options on how they could do that. So they could write it. They could make a video. They could they could make up a play or a song or they could draw a picture about it, but in some way they had to show whatever they learned for that day. And in that way, they retained the information a lot more. It really taught them that they had the power over their education, that they could take ownership and responsibility of the knowledge that they wanted to learn. It taught them that we are learning all the time. Oftentimes when we would be in, in, say for example, the animal rescue place or whatever, the information that they would read on, say, those placards or whatever, where it gives all the information for the animals, that's pretty high level stuff. It's not, that's not, you know, your normal Dr. Seuss reading that a six-year-old would be doing. And if they could read that information and retain it and understand it, then, you know, how is that any different than what they would have learned by reading a fact sitting at a desk in a school? And in this way, it becomes more real to them. You can read about whatever in a book, but when you get to stand in front of that thing or that animal or that creature and see their behavior and see how and smell it and, you know, experience it in that way, then it's a completely different experience. I remember one thing that happened when we were in Thailand. My mom had traveled to Thailand and she went to ride the elephant. And I was like, absolutely not we're not riding the elephants it's not you know great for the animals and that and my son really really wanted to do it and so we went to we went to this waterfall park and they just so happened to have the elephants there and so he went over and he looked at the elephants and they just looked so sad and they were in these very small tiny pens and they were chained and he stood and looked at them for a while and then he was just like, That that's horrible, mom. Why are they doing that to those animals? And I, you know, explained to him, this is what riding the elephants is. This is what it looks like. And so after that, he didn't want to ride the elephants. And every time he would see or hear somebody wanting to do that, he would go off and explain to them why it was, what's not good for the elephants. And this is what happens. And and they're very sad and they don't get to be with their mommies and they take the babies away. And so it became a very visceral experience for him. Not only did he research more about those things, but he became somewhat of a little activist because he shared that information in a very real way to other people.
1: I hope you have been enjoying this week's episode as much as I enjoyed producing it for you all if you are enjoying this week's episode be sure to screenshot this episode and share it across your social media channels be sure to tag at flourish and I'll be sure to repost it Also, if you're interested in learning more about this guest, head over to the Flourish in the Foreign website, www.flourishintheforeign.com, to learn more about them. I have bios, I have pictures, and I have links to their social medias and their websites. Finally, I want to encourage you to please support the podcast either via Patreon, Cash App, buy me a coffee, or our Amazon wishlist. Any amount is greatly appreciated, and your consistent support really means so much to me and really makes a difference in the production of this podcast. On to the rest of the episode. So Angie and her children are traveling around the world, having so many adventures, and so I was really curious to know more about her kids' experience and their impressions of traveling around and embarking in world schooling and unschooling. So they
0: enjoyed the travel the most and I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, my kids have kind of expensive tastes. So we did get to stay in some five-star places and stuff that they loved that sort of thing. And they were okay staying in the in the villages and things as well. They had fun and, and got to have different experiences. They loved the travel part of it. When we got to Vietnam, after a while, we kind of almost settled back into the same kind of pattern. Work, home, mom's always tired, mom's always gone kind of thing. So that... It became too much. The downside of having my kids out here by myself was I didn't have a big support system. And so if I was really stressed out or if I had a a lot going on or if, you know, bills needed to be paid and, and whatever, everything fell on my shoulders. And they had a nanny. I did have help, but it's not the same as, you know, when you have your family around to help take care and pick up the slack a bit. So that was part of the reason for them going back. A huge part of the reason for them going back, though, was that their dad came back into the picture. And a lot of families can relate to the fact that fathers are absent sometimes. And I don't I don't know about a lot of other people, but I do wish that if there was some way for my dad to come back and have redemption and end up being a good dad and being, you know, that counterpart to my mom, whether they were together or not, I would have loved that as a kid. And I know that, you know, my brothers and cousins and things like that, they also, a lot of them don't have great relationships with their fathers either. So for him to come back in the picture and him to come back in a healthy way, And we were able to reconcile our differences. To give my kids the opportunity to rebuild that relationship with their father while they were still young was really important to me. And that was the major motivation for them going back. And it's been hard. I had my kids with me every single day for 11 years. And so there's been a bit of, I'd say, there's, there's a bit of shame with having this non-traditional, you know, thing set up the way that it is. My family has not been very supportive at all of the situation. There's been a bit of guilt with, you know, not being the traditional mom in that sense. But there's been a lot of growth as well, and there's been a lot of acceptance and there's been the the relationship between me and my kid's dad now is so much more healthy and just all around better for for all of us, really. And so we just, we kind of define a new, we had to find a new normal, a new what is okay for us. And I think that's really been the, the theme of the whole journey is that, I decided to do something that was so non-traditional. There's no manual for it, there's no book, there's no right or wrong way to do it. And as we go along, we find out what is okay for our family and it doesn't really matter what other people have to say about that.
1: Angie wrote a book about her experience traveling around the world with her children and I asked her to tell me more about it.
0: So I wrote a book because I was trying to hop on them internet dollars and stuff like that. I was like, ooh, I'm going to write a book. And then I'm going to be like a marketing guru and stuff like that. But I didn't know nothing about that. So it didn't really work out. But <laughs> but I wrote a book called Chasing Happiness, Mom's Guide to Travel. And it was part self-help, sort of changing your mindset kind of thing, and part practical knowledge about you know, how to travel, how to get rid of your stuff, how to, you know, find the visa that you need for the country that you're going to and different jobs that are available abroad. So the first half of it was really about, though, changing your mindset, which was probably the most important thing that I did before leaving. Like I said, I didn't tell anybody that I was going for about two weeks before it was happening. Because I didn't want other people to let their doubt seep into my psyche and and cause fear. Because fear is healthy and it's good and it it, it keeps us from hurting ourselves sometimes. But fear shouldn't keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And often on the other side of fear, there is something grand and spectacular. So a lot of the first part of the book was about, you know talking when you need to and removing people from your life that are not necessarily supportive or helpful or, you know, sort of getting rid of the extra baggage and having a sort of singular mindset in to what direction do you want to go and not wavering on that. So it was really good. It was a fun experience. I really should. I've been getting a lot of requests for that book actually now, and I really should Edited and updated. I'm just honestly waiting to see what COVID is doing because I don't know how much of that information is going to be relevant when we are allowed to get back on the planes.
1: Angie is a popular and well-known comedian in Vietnam. And I asked her, what was her journey from educator to comedian?
0: You know, girl, honestly, I don't even know. I, I, I left the U.S. and I, I want to say it was the day before I left actually, I think it was when I was having that conversation with my mother and she was telling me, you know, this was a horrible decision for me to make. And she was like, what, you know, what are you going to do out there and how are you going to make money in school and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I want to live a life where I make money and support myself by just being me. And I had no idea what that meant. I just... As they say, I stepped out on faith. I just knew that there was something greater that I could do with my life than just punching somebody's clock and being miserable for the next 10 to 15 years. And so that's what I did. And I kind of have followed that. And every time I get myself into a career path or you know a job or whatever that doesn't seem to really align with that, I quickly find myself very discontented and I want to get out of it. But over the last two years I would say since I came to Saigon about two weeks to a month after I came to Saigon I went to a comedy show and I was bantering with the host and just you know having a good time not heckling him or anything just having a good time responding to the things that he was saying and after the show somebody came up to me and they were like hey do you want to do stand-up comedy and I was like well sure I mean I guess I could I never thought about it before but maybe. And I did. And I I did my first show and I I killed it. I did so well. And they asked me to come back the next night. And the next night was an international headliner that I was opening for. And I got paid. And I was like, I didn't know that people was making money doing this, girl. I'm here for it. So I just kept with it after that. And the guy who was running the scene at the time, after about a year, maybe a little less than a year into it, he left Saigon. And he basically gifted us the scene, all the spots that he was doing shows at, all the running shows that he had. We started Saigon Funny People with a collective of five people who slowly and gradually dropped out of the the planning and the organization of it. And it and it was just me. And actually when he left, he told me, he was like, this is really cute what you guys are doing. You know, I wish you all the best, but you know you're gonna be the one who continues this. They're not gonna help you after a while. And I was like, uh, oh, it's fine. Everybody's gonna work together and we're gonna be one big happy comedy family. And he was so right. <laughs> So I slowly made it my job and I organized a bunch of shows and I kept everybody on schedule and I, I was doing shows all the time and hosting shows and things. And as I started to do that, I got more into the nightlife here and I started to meet people and network a lot and I just, I slowly became the person who knew everything and everyone. And it was a little while before I realized that's a whole job as well. You can make money off of recommending people for this or that the other. So I did, and then I would go to venues and they'd be like, oh, can you do comedy here? And the menu wouldn't be right for comedy. And I was like, oh, but I have this friend who plays music or I have this friend who does poetry or whatever. They can come and have a show here. And it was a little while before I realized that is also a job. And so I started collecting all of my friends' contacts and information, and then I sort of became a talent manager. And that kept going for a while, and my shows gained a bit of popularity. And now we're the the premier sort of comedy group here, and I have a database of probably 25 to 40 artists at any given time. And then my most recent thing that's just happened Is now I own a nightclub. So, which again just sort of fell in my lap. There is something to knowing what your purpose is and following it. And when I first got on that stage, I was like, this is great. I felt something that I never felt working any other job in my life. And then when I got paid, I was okay, I'm here for this. But every time I get on the stage, I, feel like this is exactly what I am supposed to be doing. And I kept pursuing that and I kept going towards it. And just like when I left, I had this very singular focus of, I just want to build this up. I just want to make this my living and I want to make this successful. And to my knowledge, I am the only comedian in the city that makes my sole income from performing and doing events and shows and things. And now I have this nightclub, which just, it was a natural progression for what I was doing already. It is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my whole entire life, but it's grand. I mean, it's, it is the, the culminating point for now of all of my intersecting identities. And it does very much feel it is the, the culmination of all the work that I've done over the last two to three years every, every person, every contact, every, you know, experience that I had, it's all brought me to this point. And there's, I I accredit it only to just finding my purpose and staying in my lane.
1: So Angie has her own club in Saigon. And I asked her, how do you go about starting a club or a business in Vietnam?
0: So the, the club's name is House of Royalty and it's house like a uh, fashion house or drag house, H-A-U-S. And the process of it is very interesting. You can't really own a business in Vietnam without a Vietnamese partner. And and it's a, it's between you guys how much monetary support either party is going to put in. Like you, you pretty much need a Vietnamese partner. You need somebody to handle the the bureaucracy of it all, all the paperwork and the licensing and stuff that the system is not it, it doesn't allow foreigners to really do it by themselves without a ton of money. So it's the, the really really the only way that most people will do it is you have to have a Vietnamese partner. So I do. I have two Vietnamese partners actually, but I have part of the deal was that I have full creative control. I came up with the theme. I do the programming. I do the hiring. I do the day-to-day operations. They're somewhat, somewhat silent partners. And then they put up most of the capital for it. So it is a special situation, but it actually helped my visa situation because now I qualify for a different class of visa. That allows me to stay in the country for longer without having to do visa runs and things like that, especially right now with COVID, because the visa laws here are really kind of interesting. You can get a tourist visa, but technically you're not supposed to work on a tourist visa, but you can work on a tourist visa, especially if the money of the job that you're working for is coming from outside of the country into a bank account that's outside of the country. You can have a business visa that you that you must have if you're working for a legitimate company in Vietnam. So you can go that route as well. But whenever you have to switch over visas, usually you have to leave the country, which obviously is impossible right now. So because now... I'm considered an investor, then I can get this special extended business visa and residency card without having to leave the country. So it has actually helped my visa situation.
1: I asked Angie to describe her experience as a black woman in Vietnam.
0: I like to say that I'm a magical creature. I'm an American mermaid or a unicorn or something like that, I don't know. I have not really had any trouble at all. I know that people, I mean, of course, they want to touch your hair. They want to touch your skin. We are different. We look different, in a, especially in a society where almost everyone looks almost exactly the same. For us to come in with everything that makes us amazingly special, it kind of irritates me when people get upset that people want to stare or kind of... You know, they want to touch their hair, whatever. Honestly, if you saw a unicorn walking around just all of a sudden, you would want to touch it. You would want to be like, can I get a picture? We are something that they have no real concept of what that is in real life. So I haven't really had any trouble with it. I tend to, it, it does come from a place of curiosity versus you know, racism or discrimination or whatever, most of the time. Some of the schools here, like the English Language Centers, I've heard of people having trouble getting a job because they do consider white people to be, like Americans are white people to them in their head. And, you know, that really goes back to representation in in the media and everything, that we, we aren't represented as much as, as white people. So that does happen, but I've never dealt with any overt racism or overt discrimination or anything like that. And I I do attribute a lot of that to my personality and how I just tend to to go at the world that, you know, like I'm having fun and I give people the benefit of the doubt. And, and I, I try to lead with love. So I'm not really put off by it most of the time. There are a few times when it does get annoying. I went on a solo vacation a few years ago to Saba and I was sitting there on the beach and all of a sudden a boatload of Chinese tourists got off and they lined up on the beach to take pictures with me. And it was very weird. And you wonder what are they doing with the pictures of the random black person? It's just a thing that happens. But I haven't really experienced any nastiness. And it, in no capacity does it ever feel like racism in the United States in no capacity. Nothing that has ever been done, nothing I've ever heard about. It never is that blatant and that malicious. And it definitely doesn't have the same historical context or anything. I never fear for my life. I never, no one's ever, you know, shouted racial slurs at me or tried to hurt my person or anything like that. It's, it's not that at all.
1: I asked Angie to tell me her experience dating abroad and in Vietnam.
0: And as far as like dating and things goes, I don't have no trouble. I have no shortage of admirers. So (laughs) I'm sure, again, that has a lot to do with how I carry myself, though. It is different. It's it's interesting because I'm in a city where... There are people from all over the world, and they tend to lump Western countries together or English-speaking countries together, but we are so different. People from the UK or from Ireland or Australia or South Africa, those are all considered English-speaking countries, but our culture is so vastly different. Not to mention all of the European countries and the abundance of French people here. It's a very interesting mix to try to understand whether the differences that you feel with people are because of different life experiences or just because you're fundamentally different culturally. And a lot of it you can navigate and you learn how to, to figure it out, but there are some things that I just can't get over. and you know, that's up to each individual person. I do miss black men sometimes. And there are black men here, but a lot of them are Africans, Nigerian or Liberian. And they're just so vastly culturally different that like, I cannot, I'm not having your babies. And I don't know why you're saying you love me right now after we've been talking for five minutes. Sir, please stop. So that's something that I just can't get with. I think if you are a Black female here, you have to be open to dating outside of your race. Even the few Black men that are here, they are usually trying to date mostly Vietnamese women here. You know, it's, it's just a thing. Everybody wants to do that, which is, I don't tend to date Vietnamese people because of the, the language and the culture barrier. It's just too much for me. I can't um, see myself being in a relationship with anyone that I can't have a conversation with, and so it's nothing. It's not anything against Vietnamese people specifically. Anyone from any culture that I can't communicate very well and seamlessly with, I can't be in a relationship with. But you do have to be comfortable and open to to dating people from all over the world, and you know that's part of the experience of being here. And as One thing about Saigon, though, is Saigon is not really a city for couples. I might know like two couples. Saigon is a singles place. So it it, it can be challenging to find someone that you settle down with here. That's really not a thing. People are not looking for that. It is. It had been in the past somewhat of a transient city. People would come here and they'd be here for six months to a year and then move on. And it's just... I think the expat population mostly is between the mid-20s to mid-early 30s. So there's that as well. But it's fun.
1: I was curious to know if there was a Black community in Saigon.
0: There's probably about 100 of us or so. It's large for this part of the world, I guess. We have a group on Facebook, Black in Saigon. There's also communities in Nang and Hanoi. The other cities, I think their groups are a bit more close knit. Here, I think it's just such a, Saigon is such a huge city and people here are really, I'd say like they're either really focused on work or it's like work and party nobody's really like super focused on work but it's kind of a work party kind of situation and people tend to stay in smaller groups so i'm not really too sure why the black community in this city is not as close as as the other ones but we come out for things from time to time and people do try to plan stuff but as far as like resources go to find out where you can get your hair done and you know where you can find clothes that fit us and different resources and things black and on on facebook is it's a very good resource and it it does have the community feel in that if you need something or you know if you if you have a question or whatever you can definitely ask there and there are pockets of us that party and hang out together and do things together so There is the space for you to find your tribe, so to speak.
1: I asked Angie if she saw herself ever returning to the United States. I don't. I'm not
0: going to lie. And this may be a very unpopular opinion, but I have zero reason, other than my kids being in Hawaii, I have zero reason to ever go back to the United States. I don't ever plan on living there again. I don't um, want to participate in the American system anymore. If it wasn't for my pretty blue passport, I probably would never even look back at the States. And especially watching things happen from here now is just astounding to me and to a lot of the people that I know. And, you know, people here, they'll ask, they're, what? Like, how is that happening? And there is no rational explanation for what is going on in the U.S. None. I think that it has changed people's perception of what the U.S. is. Because when I first arrived in Asia, I would still run into people all the time. Oh, America's so great. America's so wonderful. I can't wait to go there. And now people are like, nah, I'm good. I'm all right. America may not be all that People said it was.
1: I wanted to know if Angie felt Vietnamese politics ever affected her day-to-day life.
0: It doesn't too much either. We have, we do live kind of in a bubble out here as expats because other than when you need to, you know, renew your visa or you have to get registered at the police station or something like that, Vietnamese politics doesn't really directly affect you. And so many things here are negotiable. There are rules, but it's who's enforcing the rules and on what day of the week it is and whether they feel like it or not. So it it works differently here. The politics of it all don't really affect us too much at all. We do get caught up in the day-to-day stuff. We often have to pay what we call an expat tax, which means we pay more for just about everything than a local Vietnamese person would pay. The language barrier is an issue because Vietnamese is extremely difficult to learn with all the tones and they use the tones differently than we do in English. So it's just a really difficult language to learn. So that presents issues culturally. Asians generally are not very forthcoming with things there's this kind of roundabout talkie dance that you have to do to get you can't say something directly and they laugh at really inopportune times in in our minds but you just you just get used to it and you you understand that this is the way it is and if you can chill out and just accept that that's the way it is then then you're fine
1: i asked angie where she saw herself in the foreseeable future in vietnam or somewhere else
0: I I think I will stay in Vietnam at least for a while. I don't have any plans to leave here anytime soon. I just to see my club become very successful. It's got really good buzz so far and in a direction that it's going. It wasn't something that was on my radar, so I'm just I'm just kind of along for the ride in that situation. So that's that's fun. And I would like to get back to traveling for comedy. I really enjoy that. I would like to get into movies and things, but my my strategy really is to make my name as big as it can be on this side of the world until the U.S. comes calling. I don't want to go into that situation and have to fight my way up from the bottom. I'm not here for that. I I live a very good existence out here. There's really no reason why I would do that. And I just, I want to get to a point where I am not worried about money at all. I don't think about it at all. And that I just have enough to do whatever it is that I want to do. And I have enough to help people. And I have enough to, you know, sort of do my part in helping humanity As much as I can, I want to I want to build programs for low to middle income families to help them achieve um, their dreams and their goals, whatever those may be, whether it's educational programs or financial literacy programs or helping them to get out of debt, helping their kids go to school, travel programs for people to get out of the U.S. and out of their home countries. I think travel is is a catalyst for growth and once you gain that, that perspective on the world, it really changes everything that you do. So I would like to have programs that allow people to do that and not have to worry about the, the financial part of it.
1: I asked Angie what her definition of wellness is and how has her travels and her living in Vietnam influenced her definition and practice? wellness
0: my definition of wellness is when your mind body and spirit are in alignment or as close to alignment as you can manage and I feel like in when I lived in the US I had to compromise one of those at different points in my life in order to just kind of make ends meet for example I was working 60 hours a week, which obviously is putting my body and my mind out of alignment. And, you know, I might've been able to keep up with my spiritual stuff, but it's just kind of like, that's just the way it is. That's the way you do it. So out here though, we do not work nearly as much as we do in the U.S. Not at all. Most people here work about 20 to 25 hours a week on average, and we make a very good living off of that because the cost of living is so low here and the the pay for what you do is relatively high. So we have a lot of time freedom here and a lot of disposable income, which means that you're able to go and get massages. And I get my nails done every two weeks and I get my eyelashes done and I'm able to take trips and I'm able to take time and decompress. And especially in the, the way that I work, I have almost complete time freedom. I very rarely get up with an alarm clock. If something comes up and I don't want to go into the club that day or whatever, I don't really have to. I pretty much have time freedom. So it allows me to take care of myself and to take time for myself when I need it. One of the best things actually that happened to my personal wellness journey was COVID. It was the first time in a very long time where I did not have to be anywhere. I didn't have any shows. I didn't have any events going on. Also, no one else did. There wasn't some party happening that I thought I was missing out on something. There was nothing going on. And after accepting that there is nothing going on, I don't have to be anywhere and like letting that settle in I really focused on my meditation schedule and eating healthier and sleeping more when I need to and learning how to listen to my body again and put things into myself that I, I needed listening to my intuition. So that, that part of COVID was super beneficial to me and it prepared me to be able to take on this new sort of responsibilities that I have right now. Let you know, like I said, I have time freedom, but I do have a ton of responsibilities. And oftentimes my friends are like, I have no idea how you how how I'm able to keep up with all the things that I do. But I've learned how to find the balance when I need to find the balance. I take meditation breaks throughout the day if I'm feeling stressed. I take nap breaks throughout the day. I'm a pro at a 12 minute power nap. It's my thing. I I try to eat mostly vegan most of the time and I I take time off when I need it.
1: Thank you so much, Angie, for sharing your incredible story with all of us. If you wanna keep up with Angie, you can via social media.
0: Absolutely. So I'm Angie the Diva. That's A N G E E. No, I. Angie the Diva. And I'm Angie the Diva everywhere Facebook, Instagram. I have a Twitter account, but I don't really tweet. I'm a little bit old and I'm like, I'm not young, but I'm not old. I don't tweet. I don't do that. But I got one. and Or you can follow Saigon Funny People on Facebook or Instagram if you want to know about our shows coming up. And if you're ever around, whenever we're allowed to fly again, come and check out the club as well house of royalty and we've got a lot of interesting programming happening over
1: there thank you all so much for listening to this episode and thank you again angie for sharing your story if you want to learn more about angie read her bio see some pictures things like that be sure to go to her show notes page at www.flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes slash angie Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, please consider becoming a supporter of the podcast. You can do so via Patreon, buy me a coffee, Cash App, or by purchasing a piece of production equipment via our Amazon wish list. You can find all the links to the ways to financially support us at www.flourishintheforeign.com slash support. Also, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you listen to this podcast. It is so important. And while you're at it, be sure to head over to the website. The website is where there is just an abundance of information. It's where you can learn more about each of the guests that have been on the podcast. You can see their pictures, you can read their bios, and you can find out ways to get in contact with them if you would like to do so. You can also check out the resources page at www.flourishedintheforeign.com slash resources to check out some products and services that can help you get and stay and thrive abroad. Also, if you'd like to book a consultation call with me, you can do so also via the website. I give two types of consultations. The first type of consultation I do is for moving and living abroad. If you have specific questions or if you just want to pick my brain, or bounce some ideas off of me, that is the best way to do so. And then the second type of consultation I offer is for starting a business abroad. And you can also get a consultation with me there where we can talk about your ideas and start really game planning how to launch your business or scale your business so that you can thrive abroad. If you have not grabbed my free build a business abroad guide, what are you doing? Grab that on the website Or you can grab it in any of the links on my social media profiles. So be it Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you can click on the link that is in the bio section. And it will take you to a page where you can sign up and get your free Build a Business Abroad guide. The music for this podcast is produced by Zachary Higgs. He is a talented multi-instrumental producer and if you need music for any of your creative endeavors or pursuits he is your guy you can find all of his information in the show notes thank you so much for supporting this podcast and thank you so much for believing in the voices and stories of black women Please take care of yourselves and please remember that it's not about getting abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about thriving abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. Once you get a taste of it, for sure, you you know what you want to go back to. You want to go back to that feeling.
0: You want to go back to that. And I always tell myself that even when I'm dating, I'm like, if somebody's treating me bad, I'm like, I know what good guys feel like. I know what it feels like to feel loved. So why am I going through this trash with this guy? It's the same idea. And I go, okay, <laughs> I'm in America. I feel like all I do is take the subway, see nobody, you know, whatever. At the same time, if I'm not gonna see anybody because all I'm doing, you know, besides like once a month or once a season, because we're all busy, then I can just live in Portugal and fly in once a month or once a season and see my friends then. What's the difference? I don't see you anyway.